We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's um, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Uh, The old voice of Lyndon Johnson, who won the New Hampshire primary in 1968, but he appeared to have lost it because he had a big challenge. Uh, The uh, challenger, the... uh, uh, non-incumbent Gene McCarthy got 40% of the vote. He got 60% of the vote, and people consider that a loss because he was the incumbent. But now, just recently, there was the February 9th New Hampshire primary. Oh, my goodness. Absolutely amazing. I don't think anybody saw it coming. Now, on the Republican side, it was kind of, we knew Trump was going to win. But uh, on the Democratic side, There was a sense that Bernie Sanders, yes, was going to win. I am a Bernie Sanders supporter. I'll put that right out front, full disclosure. I didn't think he was going to win by 22 points. 22 points? Unbelievable. A year ago, Hillary Clinton was up by 56 points. That was her margin, 56 points. Bernie Sanders was was, uh, essentially unknown. But along came February 9th, 2016, Uh, The words that the uh, pundits all over the uh, networks are saying, it was a crushing defeat, a landslide. She was devastated. She was trounced. My goodness gracious. Uh, Annie Linsky and Akila Johnson wrote in the Boston Globe, Senator Bernie Sanders trounced Hillary Clinton in the New Hampshire presidential primary, issuing a sharp rebuke to establishment politics that will likely set off warning bells among the Democratic elite. And I can tell you personally, being a Democrat here, being, uh, you know, I was elected for a long time, so I know the uh, Democratic, Democratic Party establishment. They are absolutely freaking out. They are tearing their hair out. They have insisted that Hillary Clinton is the next nominee. You know, democracy, well, yeah, it sort of gets in the way, I guess. But it is just astounding where it goes from here. How unique is New Hampshire How much does this mean? It may mean a lot to the campaign. It may not mean very much. Hillary Clinton could take the rest of the uh, states going forward. Who the heck knows? Well, a man with some insight on this is an old friend, John Kaczynski. John, thanks for being with us so much on Keeping Democracy Alive. I should say senator, and I brought my dog here, too. So he's, he's, he's got a voice in this as well. Oh, good. You know, I wish dogs could vote. They know people. They know good people from bad people. They really do. But they'd have a little problem holding that pencil, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but they really know good people. For the last 40 years, John Kaczynski has been consulting and advising radio and television stations on the content and presentations of their local newscasts. 
So he knows a little bit about uh, news and how it's presented. He also serves as a coach to radio and television news people and talk hosts. The last 30 years, he served as an expert witness in cases involving the impact of the anchor people on local news and the success of television stations in the marketplace. Fascinating stuff. So he knows uh, a a few things. So one of the uh, pundits looking at the results of the February 9th primary was uh, Mika Brzezinski on that uh, show on MSNBC, uh, the morning show. She said that Hillary Clinton, her problem is, I mean, there's the strength of Hillary Clinton and the weakness of, I mean, the strength of Bernie Sanders, I should say, and the weakness of Hillary Clinton. She said there is an inconsistent and non-existent message. W- what do you think about that? How much of a, of a albatross around her neck is this inconsistent and non-existent message? I think it's accurate. And when you look at uh, the success of Donald Trump and the success of Bernie Sanders, and as you were mentioning, Bert, the success of Bernie Sanders in the state of New Hampshire just really blew everybody away. But when you look at it, it is a vote not only for these people, but a vote for ourselves, because we want to feel like winners. And when you're around Trump, when you're around Bernie, you feel like a winner. So this is as much a story about the voters as it is about the candidates. And it also speaks to the message of these candidates and Bernie and uh, and uh, Donald Trump obviously have diametrically opposite messages, right. but when when you look at these messages, they are one of winners. We want to be on their side because for those who support Donald Trump, they echo his sentiments, and for those who support uh, Bernie Sanders, obviously they echo his, but it speaks to a bigger problem in the United States where we just don't feel like we have any control. We go back to the 2008 campaign. You and I were on the radio that night together when... Uh, oh, Barack Obama was elected president of the United States, and, you know, we heard words like hope and change, and they're more than words. They hold a great deal of weight again today, and that's what, that's what many of us are looking for from any of these candidates to step forward with some hope, with some change. And the only people that we're hearing it from in a very crude way mm-hmm. is Donald Trump in a very pragmatic way is Bernie Sanders. Mm. You really don't hear that message from any of the other candidates, certainly not Hillary Clinton. No. Now, it's interesting, Hillary Clinton, and I know you've met her, when you meet her one-on-one, right. I'm now speaking as the consultant of somebody who coaches people who go before lots of people, look into a television camera lens and communicate with credibility and warmth and believability. When you spend time one-on-one with Hillary Clinton, and that's only happened once, in my experience, very warm, friendly, engaging person. Yes. Um, and in many ways, she has uh, she she emulates a lot of the qualities that her husband did on the campaign trail. However, you put Hillary Clinton in front of a lot of people, a microphone or a television camera, and she turns into somebody else. And yeah. she's not someone who's just very shrill, and that's the word that that I would use as a consultant if I were coaching her. And we have heard that also in uh, the public press, and yeah. her message, whatever it might be, doesn't really get communicated. It doesn't come through the camera lens or the microphone or the radio speaker because you can't get beyond that performance. Mm-hmm. And with so many other candidates, and you know from having been out on the campaign trail, um, you know, certainly not, uh, I, I would think, at the state level, but certainly at the federal level, um, you're surrounded by a lot of people who do want to support the message of the candidate, and there's nobody there to say, excuse me, you're not doing this correctly. 
Yeah. Uh, nobody, nobody is there to say that. It's an ego issue. It's any number of issues. You see the same thing with talent on television. So somebody really needs to get to Hillary to actually change the way that she presents the message. But I think you've raised a good point. I think there has to be a message, and the message has to be uh, one that's consistent. And it does have to be a message of hope, because even though the stock market is up and unemployment is down, and you look, as Bernie Sanders has said, at uh, the distribution of where that money has gone since the recession of 2008, well, it hasn't gone in a lot of our pockets. And that is the frustration that you hear on both sides of the aisle when you look at at the success of Trump and the success of Bernie Sanders. And even when you look at uh, the other candidates, let's call them the mainstream candidates, Mm -hmm. for the sake Mm -hmm. of this conversation in the Republican Party, uh, all we have to do is look to previous elections, too, where, uh, where the members of the Republican Party have come up with, you know, we're going to be the small government people, we're going to be mm-hmm. the balance the budget people, we're going to be all of these things, we're going to repeal the Affordable Care Act, mm-hmm. and it doesn't happen. So that gets uh, certainly, uh, that, that gets uh, assimilated. That's, that's a, you, know, you look at that, it's from the voting booth, well, that's a lie. He or she did not tell me the truth. So there's yeah. that frustration, really, on both sides of the aisle, and somebody needs to wake up to this. Now, you happen to notice that Donald Trump, of all the people he has picked on, has not picked on Marco Rubio. I would bet money, as we speak here on this eve of Lincoln's birthday, that if Donald Trump becomes the nominee, his vice presidential candidate might be Marco Rubio, and that could be a very formidable ticket. Interesting. Well, I've also thought that a Kasich Rubio ticket would be strong. I mean, just looking at the electoral votes, you got Ohio, you got Florida. Florida. Big, big electoral votes. Uh, John Kaczynski, an old friend here, you talked about a number of different things in what you're saying there that I, that I want to make sure we talk about. People want to be with a winner. And it's, you know, the, the selling of the president, 1968, really was, it was a book that looked at, you know, the marketing of a president. Before that, I don't think there was as much marketing. I mean, they tried, actually, Eisenhower had a little bit of it, but... You know, it's people, especially now, it seems like the more time has gone on, busier and busier people get. They don't have time to really delve into the issues and the policy and the background and the positions. Going with a winner, you know, is kind of a big thing. I mean, I don't I don't really like that, but it does seem to be happening now that people want to be with a winner. And there's some kind of uh, attraction there. And right now. You're right. I mean, at the moment, anyway, Trump feels like a winner. He's got the big mo, and same with uh, Bernie Sanders, and certainly working for the millennial. One of the things you said about Hillary Clinton is, frankly, a word that, that her defenders, I mean, it, it's interesting to me how incredibly aggressive many of them have been. I'll tell you, on Facebook, for many, many months, there's been this repeated refrain over and over and over again that's so clearly orchestrated and coordinated any kind of criticism of Hillary Clinton. They say, liars, haters, Bernie bots. Those same three words, liars, haters, Bernie bots. And they often, as you know, John, fall back on the, uh, that any criticism is sexist. Now, would the word shrill be used for a man? Is that sort of a, a... I mean, she is, in fact, a woman, and uh, these, you know, that that word has been used a number of times. I mean, she likes to get really loud, 
And, you know, Bernie gets loud, too. In fact, his, his voice has been worn down a bit by, you know, if you were yelling all day, you'd have a worn down voice, too. But what about this term shrill? Is that inherently sexist, do you think? And what about the, the allegations of sexism as, you know, that's the reason why people don't support her, because she's a woman? What do you think, John Kaczynski? Uh, no, I don't think that's the case. And I think for those who do equate uh, shrill with sexism, you know, perhaps we should buy them another tier on their cable so they can watch more than uh, the news channels, because I think we're overanalyzing it. <laughs> um, you know, for men, it would be called, you know, whiny, or let's, let's use a word that really is, uh, is something that can be applied to both sexes. And I see this in working with television stations and talent and doing market research where we bring in, as the candidates do, focus groups to test messages to test the look to test all kinds of things about the people who are in in front of us every day and of course with local news if you watch channel nine or if you watch bill binney or if you watch Mm. one of the television stations from boston you're making a vote with your remote every single night you're doing the same thing in your home every single night and you want to be with people that you like you want to be with people who have a connection to you who converse with you, who are authentic. Yes. And that's perhaps the word that we should focus on is authenticity right. because Absolutely. It, has, it has real merit when you look at the election results in the state of New Hampshire and also what, what's happening in Iowa. Millennials, those in their 20s and 30s, are right. behind Senator Bernie Sanders. They believe that his message is authentic. They believe that he is authentic. They don't see that in Hillary Clinton. That is uh, just something that is uh, not sexist, that is something that is not partisan, that's just humans reacting to other humans. And that authenticity in millennials, the same group of people who did put Barack Obama over the top in 2008, have abandoned the Hillary Clinton campaign. There have been many stories about that, about making her campaign, quote-unquote, younger. Um, The youngest demographic group that she has in her camp are women 45-plus. Women have gone over to the Bernie Sanders. Absolutely. At least in the state of New Hampshire. They did also in Iowa. It was a little more of an even matchup in Iowa. We'll see what happens when we move to South Carolina and go into Super Tuesday as well. But what we're talking about, again, is the same decision that we make every single night with fewer ramifications, obviously. The decision we make with our remote control to choose people that we want in our home. Hmm. Interesting. And, uh, uh, Many, many, many of those same factors that uh, we use in choosing a local newscast are the same things and the same qualities that we are looking at for those running for office. Fascinating. So what we're talking here about, you know, it, it, you, your perspective here, your optic on this, I think, is really unique in that, you know, like, in a way, we're voting with our channel changer. And here we are in the 21st century and how quick we can do that. And, you know, as we talk about marketing and packaging, it's interesting to me and rather uplifting, I think, that it's still, despite all the packaging and marketing and shaping, authenticity. That is what counts. People still get that through all this, you know, super quick internet, you know, marketing stuff and image making. People get authenticity. That's one of the great things about the New Hampshire primary, the first in the nation primary, is we get to see candidates up close. And you're right about Hillary. If you, I talked to somebody in the Hillary campaign many months ago. They were saying, you know, they, they want her to do smaller events because she does well there. But you can't. You just can't. I mean, there's 300 million people in America. <laughs> you got to do big events. And you talked about 
you know, she has her her firewall uh, up until now had been the female voters. And in New Hampshire, according to uh, New York Times exit polling, 55 percent of the voters were female. And yet 55 percent of women voted for Bernie Sanders to 44 for Hillary. Uh, Among males, 45 percent of the voters, 66 percent of men voting voted for Bernie Sanders, only 32. And again, looking at the demographics, uh, the 18 to 29, which is about 20 percent of voters, 83 percent went for Bernie Sanders, 83 percent. And the uh, 30 to 44, I guess they're still millennials. I'm never sure about that. But they went 66 percent for Bernie Sanders, uh, the only group where Hillary uh, excelled was the 65 and older uh, which is only 17% of the voters, she got 55 to 44. That that doesn't really cut it so far. And of course now, you know, they, they have said, and the, the pundits across the country have said, well, look at Iowa and New Hampshire. What color do you see? You know, you see white. Now, moving on, we have Nevada first, where there's quite a few people of color who do plan to vote, union people, and then South Carolina. It seems in South Carolina, my impression, John, is that uh, uh, the white people in South Carolina are Republican, and the people who vote Democrat are very largely African-American. And she has had, I mean, Bill Clinton was considered a brother for a long time, and he may still be, I don't know, but she's had that pretty much locked up. What's your sense of of South Carolina? You've had a great perspective on so many things, John Kaczynski. What do you think? What What do you sense from South Carolina? She's had a huge margin there, or Bernie would say huge margin there. Uh, What do you see happening there with the uh, African-American votes? Well, from having consulted television stations in the state of South Carolina and having having sat on the other end of that uh, wall uh, when we've done focus groups, and when you do a focus group, as the politicians are doing as local television stations do to test their talent to see who's popular, who is warm, friendly, approachable, professional, credible, uh, the demographics of those focus groups are mixed white, and black, because that is the demographic of uh, South Carolina. And you know what? At the, at, at the end of those focus group sessions, regardless of the color of your skin, people are people. It's human nature. We want to relate to somebody we like and we trust. And I've seen that so many times with in testing talent who are white or black or Hispanic who are of uh, other ethnicities. It's, again, it's, it's just that basic People connecting with other people. And as, as much science as we throw at this, and politicians are doing that with focus groups and polls and, uh, you know, instant analysis and so much stuff, yeah. there is that analysis paralysis. And <laughs> in 2016, you know, it is still about one person voting for another person. It's that human connection, that human connection. Bernie Sanders has that human connection on a mass stage. Hillary Clinton has that human connection in a very intimate setting. And all you have to do is look at, again, how people react. Again, we're talking about how people react to other people. Go back on YouTube and take a look at uh, the speech that Hillary gave on, uh, on the evening of the New Hampshire primary, or even in those last campaign uh, appearances where her husband, President Clinton, right. is on stage. Read his body language. Oh. Look at his face. His face is saying, oh, no, she's going to lose this again. So here's a master campaigner 
a man who in a room of 50,000 made it feel like you were just with him one-on-one. On one. Yes. connected with her, yes. with you. And, 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 and his wife is not doing the same thing. You can read that in the last 48 hours of the campaign in New Hampshire on Bill Clinton's face. Take a look at those YouTube videos. Interesting. I wonder how, how different New Hampshire is. If you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Alive, Bert Cohen here, along with an old friend, John Kaczynski, who really knows his stuff about uh, uh, you know what comes across on TV, what makes a successful personality. And, you know, celebrity is, you know, let's face it, it's a big part of it. I think I wish it weren't so much, but it is. You know, being a celebrity, being with, with the winner. We're talking about what happened in New Hampshire. How different was New Hampshire, do you think? I mean, I found it amusing, startling, really, that, that the Clinton campaign kept arguing, oh, Sanders is from neighboring Vermont. Right next door, they share a long border, and that he was the hometown favorite and always expected to win. <laughs> That's amazing to me. I'll tell you, as I'm sure you know this, John, going into this thing just a few months ago, everybody knew who Hillary Clinton was, 100% name recognition. Bernie Sanders, I doubt you had more than 5% of the people who, of New Hampshire who voted who knew who Bernie Sanders was. That, that is amazing. But it is, you know, it is largely white. And, you know, there are different demographics across the country here. You know, well, as I say, you were talking before about doing uh, focus groups in, in South Carolina. Uh, do you, you think Bernie has... I mean, as long as he comes close there, I think the race really goes strong and really goes on. Uh, a, a woman here in New Hampshire, Stephanie Shaheen, whose mother is U.S. Senator, who uh, Stephanie may be running for governor herself, which is pretty amazing to me. Uh, she, she says at the end of the day, Hillary Clinton will be the nominee for president. It's just a question of how long it takes to get there. And part of that, I've heard there was a, a piece on uh, Daily Beast recently saying that Bernie Sanders is poisoning the Democratic Party by not, you know, by running against Hillary Clinton. What do you think, John? Does Democratic infighting threaten to undo the Democratic Party? I, I, I'd love to know your sense of this. Well, I think there's an element of truth there. And again, all we have to do is look to history, and history leaves clues. And look at the infighting in 1968, what happened? We had a Republican president look again. I mean, there's so many other. Look in 1980 and 1984, and everybody thought Walter Mondale was going to be the guy. Every time that has happened, there have been big Republican wins. Now, what is different this time uh, is the fact that we have this um, amazing cast of characters, and we really do have to call them characters from Donald Trump to, um, you know, and there's a little bit of a character in every one of the Republican candidates so far. Certainly Bernie is a character, and uh, yeah, you know, sure. Hillary Clinton is certainly a character in her right as well. But who would have thought that we would be sitting here today talking about Bernie Sanders, who, as you said, did not have very much name recognition outside of Vermont a year ago, and uh, talking about not only Donald Trump, not so much on name recognition, but that we would have someone who would be the frontrunner of the GOP who is actually in the WWE Hall of Fame, ah. and it's like, you know, and, and that, and that also should, that also gives you pause to see, you know, where we have come in the political process here, because when you just look back to the twenty, oh, uh, the twenty twelve campaign, and uh, you were, you and I were on the air from the Radisson 
in Manchester. Right. And I remember running into Governor Tim Pawlenty, who was still in the race at that time, the governor oh, yeah. of Minnesota, who certainly has uh, you know worked across uh, party uh, you know across party lines to uh, actually turn around a budget, turn around so much, so many things in the state of Minnesota, and seen as a rising. Uh, as a rising star in politics, and we were talking about that debate, and I don't remember—I don't know if you uh, remember the Republican debate that was at Dartmouth. Hmm. And there was there was Mitt Romney and John Huntsman, and there was uh, Tim Pawlenty. There were so many people up there, and I remember asking Tim Pawlenty. I said, uh, "Did we watch a debate, or did we see the President Romney cabinet up there on the on the stage at Dartmouth?" Because they were all pros. And, uh, you know, there are hmm. pros in politics, and pros in politics, and I mean that in, in the best sense of the term, oh, yeah. Now, yeah, yeah. you know, in terms of people who are committed to public service, who have uh, very successful careers as governors in their own states, in their own businesses, and people who you would want on the national platform. But, I don't think, but look how far we've come in a very short amount of time. It just shows you the angst in the country and the uh, anger in the country as well that is being tapped by on Donald uh, by Donald Trump and somebody who I suppose if we ask even the most staunch Trump supporters or even the establishment of the GOP to say what is his platform on right. let's uh, you know and let's just go down all of the issues that are issues uh, for all of us here in the United States you can't get an answer because we haven't gotten that answer. And the only answer that we have gotten so far from Donald Trump is, well, vote for me and you'll find out. Right. Uh, yet, at the same time, if you were to, you know, if we were to sit Donald Trump down in a room and to coach him, the Donald Trump that we saw on stage saying thank you to New Hampshire on Tuesday night, mm -hmm. that's a Donald Trump that certainly looked more, to use a term that is very often used mm -hmm. in the context of these conversations, more presidential. Yeah. Uh, more humble, and that may be one of the few times that Donald Trump and the word humble have been used in the same sentence. However, going back to our point yes. about being with winners, remember what he said. He got up to the microphone and he said, wow, look at you, look at you. There's a blizzard out there. You were skidding on the roads, but you came here to vote. He's saying you're winners because, A, you uh -huh. voted and you came here in a blizzard. Meanwhile, in that same blizzard, in that same ice on Elm Street, Hillary slipped on it figuratively, but she did. Huh. Interesting. I think that's a very, very interesting point. What the audience uh, wants to feel, do, feeling like winners. That's a very, I think, you know, perceptive point there that we, do I feel like a winner? Do I feel like a loser? What do I want to feel like? And of course, you know, all these candidates and campaigns, people want to feel like they're a winner, but the main, I mean, there's like 44% in New Hampshire anyway, and I imagine it's about the same in the rest of the country, are independent, undecided, are not driven by, you know, I'm a Democrat or I'm a Republican. They want to feel like, like they, I don't know, that, that's a very interesting point. There's some, you know, like self-reassurance there that, uh, you know, people want to feel good about themselves. And that's interesting how that plays out. And Trump yeah, I, I've, I've been trying to figure out what the heck his appeal is because he never spells out what his positions are. It seems to me if, if a reporter were to ask him, can you name the three branches of government, I doubt he could do it. Except maybe somebody said me, myself, and I, which is something other than a democracy. But the appeal that he has, I think, you know, I've seen people who uh, I think, you know, are really harmed by the system, by the rigged economy, 
they like Donald Trump, and I've been trying to figure out why. What, what do you make of it? I mean, again, he hasn't spelled out any positions on anything. I mean, on some things, he's certainly to the left of, of Hillary Clinton and even maybe to the left of Bernie Sanders, but we, we don't really know. Talk about the widespread appeal of Trump a little bit more, if you would, please, John. There is anxiety in the United States. There is that simmering anger in the United States. And yes. That's at the very root of not only Donald Trump's message, but also Bernie Sanders' message, of course, yes. coming out in different ways. Yeah. When you look at, and a lot of numbers get thrown around in polls, and the polls are the beauty contests, but when we go beyond the beauty contests, find out who those numbers are, they're in the real story. And the, the real story in the Donald Trump campaign, and this has been reported uh, extensively through a number of a number of polls, both on Fox, CNN, MSNBC, other organizations, Quinnipiac that does some uh, great political polling, they have found that the majority of Donald Trump's supporters, I believe the number is 46 percent, I'll have to double check that, but it's considerable, have less than a high school education. Um, less than a high school education, we, have, we know from experience that if you have less than a high school education, perhaps you're you know, working in, in, in the service industry job or a job that has been, that has, uh, been affected by, by layoffs, by right. manufacturing that has moved out of the United States yeah. by any, uh, any number of reasons. And, you know, you may be working more than one job, mm-hmm. working more than one job. There are many white-collar people now who have to work more than one job to make ends meet post-2008 recession. So you have that anxiety and you have that simmering anger. With that as the preamble to the answer to your question, Bert, what Donald Trump makes those people feel is empowered. Vote for me, and you too, like me, can say you're fired to those people in Washington. So we become Donald Trump as the voters. We've been empowered by him. We get to be the host of our own reality show. Unfortunately, it's called The United States of America and Democracy, and it's a pretty, pretty heady thing to be playing with, and it's not a reality show. But we get to say, you're fired to all those people in Washington. That's the appeal. Wow. Very, very interesting. People like to feel good. And, you know, again, positions on the issues, I don't know, doesn't, doesn't matter all that much. And you brought up what you're talking about here. We haven't really used the word much. Populism. It seems to me, from my reading of American history, there's a long tradition of populism in America going way back to Shays' Rebellion when the question was, Who's going to pay for the war of independence? Uh, should it be the, uh, the people who lent the money to the United States, the creditors, or should they be paid back in full by working people, by farmers and, and working people? And it was quite a little battle there. And that, I think, is you know, kind of the be- beginning of populism. Populism has been, uh, it was around with uh, William Jennings Bryan. It was around uh, with uh, Eugene Debs. And certainly with uh, Huey Long, it's long been suppressed, very effectively suppressed, because, well, gee, the people who have the big money and power really don't want a populist uh, government here, one that actually talks about the power of, dare I say, the billionaire class. That's the populist thing. And there's populism on the left and right. And in the 1930s, we saw a, a nativist racist populism with uh, uh, Father Coughlin and and other uh, leaders on the right. And it seems to me that uh, there is a lot of anger out there, a very legitimate anger, because you ask the, the average person who does vote, do you think this government is your government? Is it working for you? 
No, it's working for the top 1%, the people who have the money. And it's largely through uh, you know, campaign contributions. But there's a left and a right. I, I, I mean, there, there's concern that populism can be dangerous, certainly, uh, especially on the right, that you know, it's those other people who are the bad guys. They, those other people, are taking our jobs. When, when uh, Trump talks about building a wall and having Mexico pay for it to keep out the migrants, you know, there's a, a, a more than a touch of racism in there. And I, I just wonder, you know, there is a danger from populism for sure. I, how do you think, I mean, there's populism on the left and the right. Generally, I think, I think populism has been more right-leaning in the 20th century anyway. But, but what's your sense about the power of populism now and the anger versus the status quo. You know, if you want the same old, same old, you got Hillary Clinton, you got Jeb Bush. I don't, I, I don't see that uh, really resonating so far. What, what do you, how do you think, uh, just talk about populism a little bit. Yeah, I, I, th- I think you're right. And we go back to, as I was mentioning, Donald Trump in the uh, WWE Hall of Fame and is to use another wrestling term. If you're ever wrestled or something called the pincers move where you just kind of come in on both sides. And uh, that's what's happening here on both sides here because you've got angry, frustrated residents of the United States of America, citizens who are raising their voice, and those first-time voters, and they may be first-time voters, and they may be minorities, I don't know, we'll find out on Election Day, and also when we delve into the numbers going forward, they will come up, that's one side of the pincers movement, they will come out and vote. Also, when you look at the demographics of the Bernie Sanders-Hillary Clinton uh, uh, election, and we've got millennials who are behind uh, Bernie and who are also behind Barack Obama. So they're not in Hillary's camp. So there's the other side of the pincers movement. You've got millennials and you've got angry, frustrated, first-time voters coming out of the woodwork for Trump. So if you're a mainstream Republican candidate, that's bad news for you. If you're Hillary Clinton, that's bad news for you. And, you know, we can point it out, and one election does not make a trend, but it's significant in the uh, context of the populist revolt here in the United States. All we have to do is go out to a city in the headlines, Flint, Michigan, with the water crisis, and the Democratic mayor, who was a pretty progressive mayor for his own time, but the water crisis started happening on his watch. He lost re-election in November by only 2,000 votes. However, again, that's the beauty contest. Go inside the actual voting, and they found out that the real demise was 3,000 new voters, predominantly from African-American sections of the city of Flint, Mm -hmm. people who never voted before, who didn't vote in 2008, who didn't vote in 2012 for Barack Obama or any candidate, who didn't vote in previous mayoral elections in the city of Flint. What motivated them, it was the water crisis. They were angry. They were throwing the bums out. So you've got populists and you've got millennials. So it's a they're coming at you from both sides, and uh, you know Donald Trump is getting the populist vote. Millennials do not see him as authentic; they see Bernie as authentic. So you kind of do the math moving forward, even as we go into South Carolina, Nevada, and Super Tuesday, and it's it's going to be interesting. I heard a couple of pundits say that the Democratic nomination probably won't be decided to the end of June or the beginning of July, and the Republican that might have actually happen at the end of April or the beginning of May. Hmm. And it could it could well be Trump. And it's it's kind of amusing. And, you know, let's face it, politics is theater. 
and it's got to be amusing. I heard somebody on Facebook a long time ago say that, oh, watching the Democratic debate is like watching paint dry. And my feeling is it's not supposed to be entertainment, but it has come down to that quite a bit. People right. need to be right. entertained. Exactly. And the re- you know, there wouldn't be, Go ahead. speaking to that point, there probably wouldn't be a Donald Trump, and we probably would not have had this conversation today if the other Republican candidates and the party in general didn't respond to him. If they had a unified message, and that was the message of, he's a reality show host, he's an entertainer, what does he know about running the country? And didn't react. The mistake of the Republicans is they reacted. Look what happens every time a Jeb Bush reacts, or any of the other people that Donald Trump then picks on and zeroes on at Ted Cruz. Look what happens. The party reacted the other candidates reacted, and they created Donald Trump instead of simply ignoring him. What do you do to a bully? You ignore him. Right. They didn't, and they created it. Yeah, that is, it's, it's a difficult dynamic because I'm sure they saw the media, the mainstream media, was just flocking to him because he is very entertaining. And right. Donald Trump knows they want to sell advertising. That's what they exist for, is to sell advertising. And, and he is very entertaining. But if they called him you know, said, look, you're a reality TV show guy. You're entertaining, but what do you know about running the country? I don't know why they didn't do that. I just don't understand why they didn't do that. And you raise another interesting point, and for my brethren in television, and, uh, you know, this um, angers me, is that they've not done their job. Uh, Mm. one One of the problems with local news and why people are turning off local news in so many cities across the United States, and viewership is down in Boston. Um, it's relative, it remains relatively <laughs> strong in New Hampshire, courtesy of WMUR and the fine jobs that they do day in and day out in their commitment yeah. to news in the yeah. state of New Hampshire. But generally, the viewership in local news is down, and that is because people feel that they're not doing their job. Uh, they're not being advocates for me as a viewer. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're not empowering me with information. They're not giving hmm. me solutions. goes back to hope, hope and solutions. Give me some solutions to the problems in my life. Um, my difficulty, and I work with a lot of uh, news teams and reporters and coach them, is what I call point-and-shoot news. It's hmm. pretty easy to go out and point a camera at some police tape, talk to the policeman on the scene of the crime or the murder or the mayhem, whatever it might be, more police tape, here I am at the scene, see you goodbye. That takes absolutely no thinking. But to find out, is that an epidemic of crime in that neighborhood? What is happening? Mm. What is being done? That is reporting. Same thing with Donald Trump. It's point and shoot. You know you're going to get great stuff. Yeah. It might get you, quote, unquote, ratings. And, uh, and, and we really don't know about that because you know, his shows on NBC were not what he purported them to be in terms of their ratings. They were not as highly rated as he says them to be, but he's bombastic in everything that he talks about, and we understand that's part of the character there. But if, again, television news and journalists are complicit, as complicit as the Republican candidates for giving as much attention to Donald Trump as they did without challenging him. Right. Uh, very often when I work with reporters, I'm saying, you know, you can ask the mayor, you can ask the senator, you can ask whoever is, uh, whatever the official is in charge, that question a second time. It is not... It, it's not being impolite to say, excuse me, you didn't answer my question. I said, you're the advocate for the viewer, so ask it again. And generally speaking, and even at the network level in these interviews with the major network anchor people who are good journalists in their own right, they let Donald Trump get away with murder. 
they don't ask the follow-up question. They don't say, excuse me, you didn't answer that, or run that by me one more time. Do you really believe what you're saying mm. about? Mm. They don't do that. They're not doing their job and uh, are as complicit in the success of these candidates as anybody else. Interesting. You know, I, I have wondered, I've, I've, of course, noticed that in, in recent times, and I still have to get to see the movie Spotlight, where the, the people did their jobs. The reporters were actually investigative reporters, and that certainly happened with Watergate. You don't see very much of that anymore. And I, I've wondered, you know, how much of this is advertiser-driven? Do the uh, news uh, producers, do they want to tamp down stories that might upset their advertisers? Could it be that uh, conspiratorial, do you think? Or is it just that the reporters just aren't doing it because they're just not doing it? Yes, the answer is yes, because, uh, yes, uh, unfortunately, uh, the Wall Street uh, now controls most media here, and you're beholden to Wall Street as opposed to the real customer, and that is the viewer or the listener. Yeah. And um, at the local television station level, where there has been a great deal of consolidation, uh, yeah, we, we've seen that happen. And, uh, you know, most people, most businesses, television uh, included, are looking to do more for less. And so oh, when yes. you pay less, you might get more inexperienced right. people. And uh, we are also seeing, although I've seen this as a little bit of a generational change, having been able to mentor some uh, young men and women coming out of the Emerson program and other programs, journalism programs uh-huh. around the country, that uh, there really is a renewed sense of advocacy, of telling stories, of coming up with solutions. Therein, these new voters, uh, they're, they're in a message for the candidates. Pay attention to the changing mindset, the changing tide here in the United States of America. Uh, millennials on the Democratic side, and of course, uh, you know, the populist vote over on the Republican side. And I think that's what we're going to see in the election in 2016, which is populist versus millennial. Who's going to be the most authentic? Who's going to come up with the solutions, real solutions? And at some point in time, obviously, uh, you know, Mr. Trump, if he is the nominee, he's going to have to come up with real answers. He's going to have to show this is how you get from A to B. This is how we deal with fill in the blank of the problems that face the United States of America. You're going to yeah. need to know that uh, before you go into the voting booth. And at some point in time, I'm hopeful that uh, the press will hold whoever the candidate is on both sides of the aisle accountable right. to whatever they say. Boy, you would hope so. I mean, in order to have a democracy, you've got to have an educated citizenry, which means understanding what it is. It's not just, you know, who's your favorite game show host here. And it's amazing right. to me how they've let Trump get away with it. If you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Alive, Bert Cohen here. Our guest, I'm honored to have with us, John Kaczynski, who knows a lot about uh, how the news media works and uh, what works, what doesn't work, has a very interesting and unique uh, optic on this thing. Uh, you know, as you're saying, you know, who's, who's a celebrity and who's for real? And I thought it was fascinating. The New York Times in their exit polling asked a very good question. Who do you think is honest and trustworthy. Uh, and 50% of voters uh, who said, well, let's see if I can get this right. Um, yeah, 50% of the voters by 95% said only Sanders is trustworthy. So that half of the voters uh, said, yeah, who do you, we, we think uh, Sanders is trustworthy by 95% and 3% for Hillary. Uh, 39% 
of voters uh, when asked about both of them. Uh, 73 said uh, uh, Clinton and 26 for Bernie. What about this trustworthiness? And, you know, people who are on the Hillary team have been slamming the Bernie supporters. I mean, there's really been a war from the Democratic Party establishment on what I think is their strongest candidate, which amazes me. But that issue of trust, they say, oh, you shouldn't bring that up, the issue of trust. How important is trust? And especially in this media age where people, you know, really get like almost one-on-one with the TV and with the, uh, the uh, social media. Is, I mean, we don't get to meet the people. I mean, Vermont, I mean, New Hampshire we do, but we don't get to meet them that much. But trustworthiness, how important is that conveying that, you know, you can trust me. Critical. It's critical. It is a question that, uh, you know, we ask of people in focus groups that they're asking right now. There's a focus group going on right now as we have this conversation. Some place in the United States of America run by some candidate running for the presidency of the United States asking these very questions because that's what it boils down to. Do you trust someone else? You think of the people that you trust with things that are important to your life, Bert. It's a very, it's, it's, it's a finite list of qualities, and it's a finite list of people, and it may only be one or two people. The same thing applies when you're choosing an anchor person on television or a presidential candidate. It's the same very thing. I mean, look, we all have, as humans, again, it's, it's, it's human nature. We've all got the same taste receptors. We've mm. got it for sweet and sour and salt and bitter and everything. Mm-hmm. Now, moral foundations work the same way. And when you look at Donald Trump supporters, they may look at morality differently than a Ted Cruz supporter or yeah. a Sanders supporter, but it all comes down to do we feel compassion for people who are vulnerable and suffering? Is there some fairness there? Where's the fairness? Are people getting what they deserve? And I'm sure the Trump supporters are voting for him because he's going to give the people what they deserve, be they um, you know, immigrants, be they ISIS, be they the people who are sitting on Capitol Hill right now. And then there are other issues of loyalty and authority and all of these other things, the gravitas that we were talking yeah. about. And it also boils down to this question, and it's a question that I have asked running focus groups for the last 40 years, and it's this basic, even in 2016. Would you invite the guy, would you invite the woman over to your house for a beer? Right. Would you want him to sit in your kitchen and talk to you? And, you know, I'm, I may be oversimplifying it, but that's really what we're doing when we go in the voting booth. Are we going to vote for somebody that we want to have over at our house, and then we put on that finite list of those that we trust with our future, with our finances, with our kids' lives? That's what it boils down to. Wow, that that is very very interesting. And you know, you talked earlier about a beauty contest. I don't think uh, Bernie Sanders would ever win a beauty contest, but he's 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 for real. He's honest. He's genuine. And it's fascinating to me how George W. Bush won election largely. You know, he beat uh, Gore. He beat uh, uh, Kerry. Well, I don't know if he really beat Gore, but anyway, he became president. And people said, yeah, you know, I could have a beer with this guy. Right. Fascinating how positions on issues. I mean, to me, I wish people did vote on positions on issue, but is the guy or woman likable? Would I want him or her to come over my house and have... Bush 43 was a tremendous, tremendous retail politician. Uh, Bush, you know, if Bush 43, while that people are saying, and I know know Jeb is bringing him out uh, now to campaign... But, uh, you know, 
there, there is genius in that. While everybody is saying, well, look what he did to the economy, look what he did, he's the worst president of all time, just take that aside because, um, you know, yes, that's a part of the narrative that's going to be in there. But uh, Bush 43 is a tremendous retail politician. Ask anybody in New Hampshire. Uh, you know, go back. I don't know if they're even on YouTube, but if you watch the C-SPAN unedited video, as they all always do, it's just kind of follow yeah. candidates around organically. Yeah. You see this amazing connection with this guy who, and you've got to give Bush 43, you got to give George Bush a lot of credit for turning his life around, yeah. of, uh, you know, de- dealing with demons in his life. Right. And this really genuine human being who would connect to other human beings, that's the person that America voted for, and it is uh, genius for Jeb to bring that out and to tap into that real quality that that man has. Interesting. And, yeah, I mean, people also bring up, well, Bernie can't win. He's too liberal. He's you know, a socialist, a democratic socialist. Well, let's stop there first before I go on to you know comparing him to McGovern and other people who lost really badly. What do you, to me, you know, people over sixty-five? Yeah, they they conflate socialist with communist. Of course, the reality is communists hunted down and killed socialists. But that's. I also ask those people who talk about socialism. But I'm saying, do you think about it when you cash your social security check? What about that Medicare that you have? Uh, you know, what about, uh, you know, oh, yeah, the, the roads we drive on, right? right? Yeah, the money that comes to the federal government. And speaking of money, and now Bernie gets slammed on taxes, is, and I wish a candidate would talk about this, taxes. We run our cities and our states, obviously, on tax dollars. Uh, you know, we're, you know we're, we, all, we all chip in as citizens of our communities uh, to make sure the infrastructure works. Yeah. And you can't run the infrastructure, you can't fix the pothole, you can't do stuff if there isn't any money there, and it comes from taxes. That's, that's how it works. And I don't know how taxes got, it's brilliant how it's just gotten positioned into this evil thing that's out there to rob me of money, but that's right. how our communities work. Well, and certainly our founders, you know, part of their, their thing, their focus, their vision was on the common good. The government is there for the common good. But I've also heard it said, just in terms of, you know, uh, how it plays in the media and stuff, when you're explaining, you're losing. People don't understand what socialism is, democratic socialism, which is far different from non-democratic socialism. But what, a think of, what, what about that when you're explaining you're losing? Because people don't know what it is, and you have to be explaining it. What do you think about that dynamic? You're right. And, uh, you know, I've uh, had the opportunity to uh, work with a couple of political candidates uh, in my experience of coaching talent. And in the broadest sense of that term, we'll just put them under that umbrella right now. Uh-huh. And yes, and I, I have learned that from them as well. So the key is how do you explain and explain it in, um, you know, in almost soundbite fashion. We credit, and, and I think he's the smartest man in television. And I had the opportunity Who's to that? meet him when I was just a, just a kid in TV. And he's a, he's a hell of a nice guy. Roger Ailes, the genius behind uh-huh. Fox true. News Channel, because in that basement on Walnut Street in Philadelphia where they did the Mike Douglas show, uh. here, is, here is this little associate producer who is assigned to bring Richard Nixon, then candidate, onto the show and work with him. And uh, as this really smart guy who really understood television and how to communicate a message, uh, especially in an entertainment platform, mm-hmm. there's Ailes saying, and goes back to what we were talking about before, saying something that was contrary to all of Richard Nixon's handlers. It's like, Mr. Nixon, you can't, you're, you're terrible. <laughs> you're terrible. You can't. You can't. No one's going to understand that. You can't explain. 
you got to do it that way. And nobody hit, uh, you know, Richard Nixon in the forehead with a figurative two-by-four, and that resonated with Nixon, and three days later, there's Roger Nails working for Nixon, and we know how 1968 turned out. Well, that was the real nucleus, the genius of Roger Ailes as a great communicator, and as someone who understood the medium of television, and applying it to, um, you know, to political candidates. It, uh, you know, it wasn't something that came overnight. There were a lot of, uh, he went to the School of Hard Knocks called Capitol Hill and understood how Washington works, and combine that with his smarts for television and fast-forward to today mm. and Fox News Channel. But he also understood, and the message that he communicated to Richard Nixon in 1968 is, you got to get it across in 40 seconds or less. Uh. It's a soundbite. And so now, uh, you know, the soundbite has become a punchline in sure, our right. society, True. and uh, the soundbite is what controls the message on Fox News Channel. And we talk about, you know, the marketing of a candidate and, and connecting, trusting a candidate. You can imagine how many people in the Democratic Party establishment, which is absolutely freaking out, are saying, oh, my God, look what happened to McGovern. Look what happened with Dukakis. I mean, Dukakis had that, that moment in the tank. That wasn't even a soundbite. It was just an instant picture there. You know, right. we, we lost with somebody on the left. How can we possibly do it now? Is Bernie Sanders enough different? Is there that populist thing? Has the country come around more to be able to listen to that? What are your thoughts on that, on comparing, you know, uh, the lack of a win by George McGovern when he carried one state to uh, Bernie Sanders? Well, I think you can't ignore but the support that Bernie Sanders has gotten both financially and, again, we look at the demographics and uh, this uh, group of millennials who gets kind of dismissed in a lot of the polls. And uh, kind of gets dismissed as a block of voters. And also, uh, speaking to the populist point again, is look at that other block of voters. And, uh, you know, again, go back to the, uh, the uh, election, the, no- last, the November's mayoral election in Flint, where people who never voted before were angry and came out. And I think we'll probably see that as well. Uh, you know, we know from experience that uh, the people who vote in primaries, although there were a lot in New Hampshire this, this time around, yeah. um, are not the same numbers that come out in the general election. Although President Obama yesterday going back on the steps of the state capitol in Springfield, Illinois, where this kind of all started, uh, said, you know, if 99% of us voted, we wouldn't worry about the 1% trying to buy an election. True. And, and they're, in, they're in the truth. And, uh, you know, one of the fears, and I'm sure you've communicated it on your program, is that with the friction that's going on, the ever-growing friction between the Hillary camp and the Bernie camp on the Democratic side, A, they haven't learned the lesson of the fighting and the infighting that's going on in the Republican Party. It's now infected the Democratic Party. And uh, and in that, it could so fracture the Democratic Party that uh, people don't come out to vote. It's like, well, I'm a Bernie supporter. I'm never voting for her. Right. I'm a Hillary supporter. I'm never voting for him. Right. I'll show them. Right. And you know, and that's that's the fastest track to get something that is what you've been campaigning against. Absolutely. For your particular candidate. You know, I think you have to look at the you know for the good of the country. That is with a word called patriotism that gets thrown around yes. a lot. That's truly being patriotic and and just exercising um, this great right to vote. That's such an obvious, but also on the M word that gets thrown around, morality. And, you know, Mm. it's always morality, (laughs) morality, religious right. No, we have a moral obligation also as Americans, as, uh, you know, living in this democracy to vote. 
Yes, we do. And I mean, I, I have certainly, being a Bernie supporter, seen some people say, oh, if it's not, you know, it's Bernie or bust. I, I don't, I think when it comes down to it, if we can communicate, hey, we have the Supreme Court at stake here, I don't think they'll do that. And every, it seems to me, every four years, we have had a really spirited contest. I'm not sure how different this is in terms of the, you know, the anger, the uh, the fighting between the Bernie camp and the Hillary camp. I, I don't know. What's your what's your sense of how different it may be or may not be? I think there's more there, there's there's more fighting on the Democratic side than I think we've seen in 2008. Uh, you know, oh, yeah. Of course, you know, Bernie is drawing those the young liberal voters, millennials, yeah. um, you know, who also have that desire for individual autonomy yes. and are placing less value. The millennials place less value on, on the social conformity and tradition. And therein, another problem with, with Hillary's campaign as well, it's great that uh, she brings out Gloria Steinem <laughs> and uh, also talks about, um, you know, and, and talks about, uh, you know, the women's vote, and that's legitimate. And, uh, you know, Gloria Steinem was a trailblazer in her day. In However, her day. look at millennials, and that's, that's somebody that their grandparents yes. might know. It doesn't relate to today. It hurt Bill her Clinton, terribly. For a millennial, is somebody that you read about right. in a history book. Absolutely. Doesn't appeal to today. Well, so, uh, they don't normally the millennial the young people don't normally vote, but they voted this time. I, I got to mention one thing there uh, on Facebook. There's there's a friend of mine, Bill Valier, said down in my part of Florida, which is extremely important, and I would think we very tough area for Bernie Sanders. He says down in my part of Florida, I'm seeing quite a few Bernie bumper stickers, but none for Hillary. Last night I saw an off-road redneck style pickup truck with "Feel the Burn" across the rear window. I wonder how you know that's different. That's not millennial, but that's a key key uh, demographic. I, I think they're kind of up for grab. Definitely, and I think what you have to do is, and the reason that you're seeing those Bernie bumper stickers on, on, on automobiles where you might not expect to see Bernie yeah. bumper sticker in places where you might not expect to see it, is this Reagan coalition on the Republican side has been fractured. Name me uh, a candidate who has brought together the conservatives, the libertarians, and the foreign policy hawks. They're not out there. Big Boulevard that a Kasich or even a Bush could uh, yeah. could fill and uh, go right to the top. Yeah, it's just it's so interesting. It's a very exciting year. I hope we can talk again between now and November. John uh, Kaczynski, thank you so much for your unique angle and and wisdom sharing it here on keeping democracy alive. That's what we're trying to do: keep democracy alive. Thank you so much. Thank you, Senator. Bit of a surprise in New Hampshire. Thanks for listening.